and welcome back to another episode of InCheck with Fintech. Today we have a very special episode for you coming live from Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam. On this special episode, we are honored to be joined by Lida Gliptus, Chief Client Officer of Tenex Banking, a cloud-native core banking provider enabling banks to fully compete in a digital economy. Lida is a former banker, technology executive and founding CEO. She is also a writer and speaker on transformation, digital capability building, embedded finance and open banking. Enjoy listening. Welcome, Leila, to uh, this special episode of In Check with Fintech, uh, live from the Money 2020. I'll do a short introduction of you. So on the show with me is Leila Glyptis. She's the chief client officer at 10X Banking. She's also a non-executive director of Flagstone, has a PhD in politics from LSE, is a blogger for Fintech Futures. Uh, you just spoke on the Horizon stage about how to build a bank in, two, in 12 weeks, uh, and you're current, currently rising to fame with your book, Bankers Like Us. I quite like this introduction, actually. I'm glad we recorded it. <laughs> what am I missing? Oh no, altogether greatness. I liked it. No, it's <laughs> been it's been a hell of a it's been a hell of a road. It's been a, a hell of a ride so far. Good. How do you like the show? Yeah, it's been good. I've been on twice, so it's been brilliant. Oh, all right, okay. <laughs> it's downhill from now. <laughs> How was the uh, presentation earlier? It was good. It's. Uh, our presentation, so I did two presentations, one on how to build a bank in 12 weeks, which was essentially just don't do most of it yourself and only focus on the hard parts, which um, strangely is not a message that we land often enough, but we should. And the other one was a presentation on uh, the key themes of my book, uh, which is mostly around how digital transformation is failing, not because the technology isn't here scaled and, and robust, but because people have long-standing habits that get in the way of change. <laughs> yeah, I think so. In scouting a guest for the show, be very honest, um, I was keen to get you on because you are all over the place at the moment. I think on my time feed, I've, I've seen you come by several times because of that book, yeah, yeah, Bankers yeah. Like Us. So I think that people element is very important. And I think the same goes for general kind of fintech industry. Uh, people is really important and they're basically at the uh, helm of making sure that this uh, industry is going to grow next to the technology. The technology doesn't work without the people. Quite, so. that's right. Um, but I want to maybe go from an angle, and I know you wrote quite some blogs uh, about this yourselves uh, as well, which I'll, 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 I'll quote a few in a bit. Um, but let's talk maybe a bit about how diversity fits into that, right? Yeah. So there's people, there's diversity. I think there's two angles we want to go down on. One is the people side, and one is the kind of landscape side of things. Mm -hmm. Let's start with that, with, that, with that people side from a diversity uh, point of view. Um, why do you think it's important? Let's start with that. I mean, obviously I sit here, I'm female, I'm an immigrant, so I think it's important because without it, I'm left out in the cold. So there's a very personal agenda here. But I, I think it's very, very important for, for two blatantly obvious reasons. One is you're trying to do hard work, right? If we're trying to digitize our financial services, we're trying to build scaling businesses, we're trying to do hard things here. If you only hire men, you're only looking for talent in 50% of the population. If you're only hiring white men, you're only looking for talent in 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. Now there is some spectacular talent in that bucket, but why would you not broaden your appeal? The second piece, which is equally important, is that we're trying to do hard work in accelerated timeframes. We want all the perspectives and ideas we can get. And having that diversity of perspective, diversity of thought, have you thought about this, is the chance we have of moving faster. It's a different point of view that you need in order to be ahead of the game. That's right. If you will. So how can we get more of it, in your opinion? 
So the reality is that everyone in our industry will talk about diversity and they have amazing little initiatives and they have nice, uh, they give you a t-shirt and they give you a lanyard in, in, in rainbow colors <laughs> for pride. Yep. And everyone does a photo op for International Women's Day and everyone has a nice photo on their website about their team being as diverse as they can, they can find for the photo op. But the reality is we know we have a problem across the industry, most industries as well, but specifically across our industry, we know we have a problem. That's why we have diversity and inclusion champions. That's why we have diversity and inclusion metrics. That's why we have diversity and inclusion um, teams. And that's how also, incidentally, why we also have innovation <laughs> initiatives, because we know that organically it isn't working. So I think the first, the first step is to say, okay, we know we have a problem. And we know that 10, 15 years into running those initiatives, the problem hasn't gone away. So can we be maybe a little more honest about what the problem is? Because the things that are being done and not done are being done or not done to someone by someone. And I think part of the biggest challenge we've had, both with our innovation narratives and our um, diversity and inclusion narratives, is that we've tried to stay positive. <laughs> we've tried to stay constructive. Everyone is in this together. We all support each other. We all think that's a good idea. Great. But then why is it not working? Someone is not doing the right things. And although everyone wants to stay away from a narrative that will inevitably discuss about who's the victim and who's the perpetrator, I don't, I don't think we can. I think as we look at the journeys our businesses have to go on, to transform, to become more inclusive, to become more diverse, to do better, we're going to need to be honest about the things we're not doing well. And it won't be in that soft, fluffy language of everyone's friends here. So you have to be honest. You need the initiatives. But is that enough? And I'm asking because I know you wrote in one of your blogs about that. I think you compare, maybe you can talk about that a bit. You compare diversity to a company. Do you remember that? I do. I do. Um, I don't think that these things can be side of desk initiatives. I, I don't. I think it's important to acknowledge when there is a gap or a problem and to put effort around it. So program work around something is not is not an issue. But to say, well, we have a diversity champion and we have an innovation lead, so we're, we're fine, um, is not only naive, but also we have seen over the last 10, 15 years of these jobs existing that they don't turn things around. It has to be an everybody all the time kind of job. Everyone has to work towards the same goal. Everyone has to share the same goal and everyone has to share the the impacts and consequences. So uh, a good example that I, I do use in my blog is if you if you have a vacancy in your team, it's urgent to fill it, right? Someone very good has resigned because they got a nice new job somewhere else and you need to fill that role. If you go to your usual suspects, chances are you're going to get people with a very similar profile to the ones you have. So your diversity of thought won't be fantastic. Chances are your diversity in general won't be fantastic. Do you? hire the best person that has come through, even though they look and sound and think like everyone else you have, or do you take longer to be true to your values? We all know what happens in businesses. They hire the best person who's come through and promise to do better next time. But the reality is, if you're true to your values, you make sure your pipeline is diverse. And unless you have seen a diverse pipeline of genuinely different candidates, you don't hire. And you take the impact of that team being understaffed. I think that diverse pipeline, from what I know, from clients that we work with, it, it's simpler said than done, if you will. I think the struggle is to create even that diverse pipeline, right? Is, is there ways that you 
yeah, maybe let, let me take a step back. If I talk to other people uh, about the diversity topic, they say job descriptions are not written in a diverse way. So it doesn't uh, empower people who maybe don't necessarily meet all requirements to apply. Whereas straight white males, I'm sorry, uh, being one myself, uh, tend to be more like, okay, well, I hit nine out of 10 boxes, I'll just apply anyway. Yeah, so, so I think there's, there's a lot in that, but I don't think it's the full story. So I would apply for a job that said superstars wanted. I, I appreciate that a lot of women wouldn't, mm -hmm. but equally a lot of men wouldn't. So I, I think job descriptions are absolutely important. I, I think there is definitely a habitual thing that men will be like, oh, I meet eight out of 10. Yeah, I'll go for it. Whereas a woman might not. There is definitely an element of how, how we raise um, how we raise our, our kids. I mean, I don't have any, but there is studies that show that uh, girls start losing confidence irrevocably from the age of five. Mm -hmm. And their confidence takes a knock that Devon recovers in, in adolescence. So all of those things are socially constructed. And arguably, if you're a hiring manager, you can't fix society, but you kind of should. Um, I, I would accept that, look, if you, if you look at financial services now, the women to men ratio is almost reflecting 100% the population ratio. This population is like 48 point something percent women. Financial services in Europe is about 47, 48% in America. I think it's a little more, but it's, it's close enough to be even. But it's only 15% of senior roles in financial services mm -hmm. are women. In tech, it's even lower at 14%. And, and last year, the 100 top Silicon Valley funded uh, tech companies had a big fat zero women in their senior positions. So if you're looking to hire a CEO for a particular role or a C-suite, whatever, I accept that because of cumulative decisions made over the last few years, the women around who have that experience or the people of color who have that experience will be in short supply. However, how far would someone be if they had a bit of mentoring? How far would they be if they had support? Or what would it take for you to hire um, a cadre of people into your company that might not be your CEOs and your CFOs now, but they will be in five years mm -hmm. in making that group diverse? I think it's facile, it's true, but facile to say, well, I need someone at that top level right now. Women haven't historically been promoted, so I don't have who to pick from. True. And then what? Start at the root. Start at the root and work all the way up. I genuinely believe that going out to people who might not necessarily apply for a job and, and finding them, allowing people to grow into a position with the right levels of support, these are things that are intentional. The other thing is that for a lot of senior positions, people don't apply. It's word of mouth, it's people being encouraged and nurtured, it's a phone call from someone you know from the circuit. And, and not many people have a, a deeply diverse network of people they will call. So. You see it in founding teams, that it tends to be people who look and think very similar and they went to school together or they worked at such and such a place together and then they moved as a friendship group. And that's lovely, but we can do better. How do you, maybe to make it practical, how do you make sure you have a diverse team at 10X? Is there specific things that you do in order to create that? Do you coach indeed? Uh, so we, we commit to seeing diverse pipelines. Mm -hmm. um, it's, an, it's a way of keeping yourself honest as well, right? If, if you don't see them, you're definitely not going to hire them. If you see them and never hire them, then there's some unconscious bias in the organization. But if you make sure that your, your pipelines are diverse in, in every metric, 
in, in every way. So people who don't have the exact same experience, people who don't look exactly like you. So, so that makes a big difference. Having diversity in the panels, so not having the same three people interview the same three people. Uh, resources so we can have a, a real dialogue with our teams about, we think we're diverse and inclusive, but what does it feel like to you, employee? Mm -hmm. What does it feel like to people across our entire organization? And also accept that we haven't gotten it right 100%. And we need to be learning. I've had some very interesting discussions with, with team members about what the right way of affording inclusion, right? Because diversity in terms of getting people in the, in the building is only half the game. If they don't feel welcome, if they don't feel seen, if they don't feel appreciated, then you're going to lose them and you're going to make them unhappy in the process. But to assume that I know what someone who's just joined the workforce has a completely different upbringing to me, has a different sexual orientation, a different lived experience because of their skin color, to assume that I know what they need, it's just stupid, right? And yet we do it again and again and again. So I think it's, what we need to do is not very complicated. It's just, we need to do it with discipline and consistency forever. And that's easier said than done by the looks of it. Exactly. It's yeah. easier said than done because it means that we need to break a lot of habits. It means we have to take the implications of investing time, investing the effort. Um, it also means that we need to be told and take the feedback that things we do are not right. You talk about two reasons, right? Just going back to the two reasons you mentioned for uh, uh, around diversity initiatives. We need initiatives and we need to point out the wrongdoers. Why are people so scared of pointing out the wrongdoers? Because I think that's probably the biggest hurdle that needs to be overcome. So I think people are, people don't want what quote unquote a witch hunt. Mm. They want to be able to fix this without having to go through an unpleasant and difficult person saying your behavior is unacceptable. People largely don't want confrontation and that's fully understandable, but they also don't want often to reflect on the fact that they may be wrongdoers and it's ways big and small and you realize that you're going to have to reflect on your behavior and now it's very easy to say well you mean i have to police my behavior yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's like well potato potato do you always ask the woman in the room to take notes if you do you have to reflect on your behavior if you're reflecting and it doesn't fix it then start policing your behavior yes so i think there is a an unwillingness because we we believe and i think it's true to a large extent that unconscious bias plays a big part here. Mm -hmm. we also believe that because it's unconscious it's not the fault of the person doing it and that may be the case but by talking loosely around these things we don't fix them You know, a, a, a woman in the workplace or a person of color in the workplace or a person who expresses their sexuality in a way that is very visible will have jarring moments several times a day. You can choose to not do anything about it and just coast through them. But by the end of your working day, you're that more tired yeah. than the person who didn't have those. And I had a, a situation with a very good friend of mine recently. Someone said something really awful to her in a public place and I went for him and the next day I apologized to her I said you know that did I overstep the mark you don't need someone to protect you I know you're you're fierce and capable and amazing she said well you gave me a choice that I don't normally have though to have the fight or not have the fight I think you make a good point there in terms of 
the unconscious bias in the sense that it's a, the process of becoming conscious of these little things. For example, asking the woman in the room to take notes. I'll be very honest, that also was something that I had to start, not necessarily that example, but in general, I think becoming of conscious of maybe the situations that people run into um, on a constant basis, which I don't. Yeah, but, but uh, and, and I appreciate you for saying that, but let's face into what that usually looks like. When you're told, are you asking me to fetch the coffee because I'm a woman? Are you asking me to take notes because I'm a woman? I've been in meetings so many times with my teams who are men and the, the clients will look to them for a decision and they're like, she's over there. So once you're, you, you, you point out the unconscious bias, you, as the person who made that error, has a choice. The first choice, the path the least taken is, oh God, you are, you're right, yeah, sorry about that. I told, yeah, I did that. I didn't mean to do it the way you experienced it, I'm sorry. The other, which is the most common, is relax, will you? Not everything is a feminist battleground. So you find yourself having to explain that, but it is, because it keeps happening yeah. to me. And also, I've given you some feedback about how working here makes me feel, and you've thrown it back in my face. And now it's incumbent upon me to act normal for the rest of this meeting. I'm going to say it's a straight white male. It's, it's, it's still hard sometimes. Uh, well, try, try the other side. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's it indeed. That's, I think, where the conscious, making the unconscious to the conscious bias comes in, right? I just think you need to talk back about transformation. That's where that comes in. You start to realize that the struggle that is on the other side in order to actually change yourself. That's right. And, and I do think that there is a pattern here that we need to reflect more widely. Like I, I talk at great length in my book about the habits we have in our workplace and how they they determine things like how we make decisions, how we allocate time, how we prepare for things. And that means that our ability to understand and process things is affected by those habits. And actually those habits fall, they have very, very different outcomes, but they fall in the same place. Mm -hmm. That we, we default to doing things the way we've always done them, not reflecting on that behavior, resisting the push to do things differently. And then there's the digitization initiative over there and the innovation initiative over here and the diversity initiative over there. But fundamentally, all we're saying is that our organizations have habits of a different era that don't suit the business models anymore, don't suit the regulatory or market landscape, and they don't suit the expectation of what fairness is. They also mean that a lot of good ideas are left on the table. So. The material reasons to do it are numerous. It's yeah. just uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, 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 from a people point of view, uh, of view, diversity is definitely needed. Back to our initial point, diversity is needed for transformation. Yes. yes, from a people point of view. What about the landscape itself? So traditional banks, incumbent banks versus fintechs versus what you see here at the show. How will that kind of diversity help with that transformation or in general with uh, moving ahead? So the, the early years of, of the fintech wave was all about new ideas, right? It was all about new ways of working, new business models, new ways of deploying technology, new technology that kept blowing our mind. And we have now reached a point in this transformation where the technologies that were new and scary and a lot of the financial services institutions were like, oh, they're not tested yet. <laughs> you know, we can't really use them in anger. All of those technologies have scaled and proven themselves largely outside financial services. 
the financial services firms of all sizes have retained some of that creativity, but they've also had to look like each other to be able to sell into each other. It's mm -hmm. practical, right? It's, it's good sense. If you're trying to sell into a bank, you need to do things that make the bank comfortable around your governance, your compliance, blah, blah. And, and actually what we found is that the entire economy has digitized faster than us. The regulators are learning faster than us, e-commerce and, and publishing and uh, manufacturing and pharmaceutical, everything is digitizing faster. And financial services aren't. And it's inevitable to say it's not a technology failure because we can use the technology the other guys are having. And it's not a business model failure because we can see it working. It's that diversity of thought that pushes you to do things outside your comfort zone that's pushing them faster and not us. Because if we look at the last 15 years, it's fair to say that financial services has done a lot as part of the digital transformation. And yet we have moved holistically as an industry, FinTech and NEOs and everything included in this, we've moved slower than the economy around us. And I firmly believe that it is because of the habits and the structures inside organizations and the firm belief that was there for a very long time that we can dictate the pace. And if we can dictate the pace, we can afford to not change habits or structures that are comfortable. Well, turns out that's not the case. So is that the true enemy of financial services or of banks? Is that digitization is moving way faster than they think instead of you recently spoke about that versus the fear of the fintechs? Yeah, I, I, so we spend a lot of time, you're right, I did talk about this recently. Um, we spend a lot of time fearing the fintechs and the disintermediation that would come. And that disintermediation hasn't materialized in the way that we expected it. There's been definitely some encroachment from neos and fintechs and, and big tech, but the reality is the challenge has not been so much that someone came and take, took something away from your value chain, is that the way that you're expected to service that value chain, both from a regulatory perspective and from a customer perspective, needs new infrastructure, needs investment in technology, needs new ways of working, new skill sets that you don't have in the organization. And every step of the way, our habits hold us back from getting them in the room, from letting them work without submitting themselves to a, you know, um, potentially antiquated hierarchy. So you're, you're, you're moving as an industry, we are moving slower than the rest of the economy because I firmly believe for a long time we didn't think we had to move at pace. But if I look at it, I think the two biggest challenges for an incumbent traditional FS player is how much of their legacy tech estate they have chosen to carry. Mm. And it's not the technical problem as much as what that does to unit economics, right? You have a tech estate that is expensive and you can't price highly for your digital service. So it creates an economic model issue. And for a, for a challenger in a startup, it's a lot of the the fact that they may have better technology, but because they're selling into financial services ecosystem that hasn't quite moved with the times, the business models, even for the challengers, are quite analog. The world won't wait for us. So what's the solution? And is it simple, this is why digital transformation is so important? Or how do, is it, is it inevitable that some banks will collapse because of this, you think? Would it go that far? I think digital transformation is now table stakes. When I started my career, we were talking about it as a differ differentiator, and now it's table stakes. The, the regulatory requirements are actually so extensive and um, sophisticated mm -hmm. 
that the the amount of digital transformation and streamlining required and and resilience in the systems is table stakes. Um, so we need to take a long, hard look at what is stopping us from getting there. And it's not the availability of technologies, the way we manage processes inside our organization. So I hope, I really hope that as the rubber hits the road with all these efforts not scaling the way they should, these things that we've been doing on the side will come together and say, you know what, we're managing different things in the same way. We have the same committee structures and the same funding structures and the same governance structures and the, the same way of assessing talent roughly for the last however long. And all of that is going down a path of being pushed here and there on the peripheries with initiatives like our innovation and diversity, but fundamentally the core of the business, and I don't just mean big banks, I mean most businesses working in this industry is doing the same stuff. So it's all coming together and saying it's time to do things differently with more talent in the room and a greater sense of urgency and holding on to the way we used to do things really held us back. So what if we bring more people into the room who grew up in different industries and learn things elsewhere and don't have the same learned behaviors? Maybe, just maybe, they won't hold on to learned behaviors as much. Which brings us back to diversity. Which brings us back to diversity. Around. And diversity of all kinds, right? I, one of the biggest fights I've ever had with an employer was to hire a heterosexual white middle-class man because he didn't have banking experience. But he brought a wealth of experience from industry and tech that we really needed in our team to make us smarter. So the, the, the thing that holds us back inside FS is the familiar, is the fact that we believe we have a very complicated industry in our, in our care and you need to have deep and specific behavioral and knowledge traits. But the reality is you can learn them and maybe bring some other stuff in the mix. Hiring the mini-me's. Yeah, exactly. Hiring endless mini-me's. Yeah. Leda, thanks very much. Uh, I'm conscious of the time, but I'm sure that there's people listening, whether it's now or later on, that want to maybe read more about it in your book. Where Amazing. can they get a copy? So there will be some copies for some lucky few uh, tomorrow, uh, here on Money 2020. And they can also get a copy at, um, on the Routledge website or Amazon. Awesome. All right. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of InCheck with Fintech. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and leave us a comment below. We'll be having more industry leaders soon, so don't forget to subscribe as well in order to stay updated with the latest episodes of our podcast.